0: Acts chapter 23, we're going to be looking at verses uh, 12 all the way to the end of chapter 24. So I've got some ground to cover this morning, so my usual recap of what's been going on is going to be very, very short, and we're going to try to uh, plow on through this uh, very quickly. But before we do that, let's pray before we get into God's Word. Father, we're grateful for the day that you've given us. We're grateful for the opportunity to gather together, sing your praises, to open your Word. And I pray that you would have the Holy Spirit change hearts here today, that every single one of us would be more inclined to be more like Christ as we leave this place than we were when we got here. And we love you. It's in your Son's name that I pray. Amen. All right, so for anyone who may not know, we typically work through books of the Bible. Here we're in the process of working through the books of Acts. And as you can see, we're in chapter 23 this morning. And at this point, Paul has gone up to Jerusalem. Uh, We finally get to hear in chapter 24 that the reason why he had gone up there is to uh, deliver uh, an offering that he had been gathering from the Macedonian churches. So he had gathered that up, he went to Jerusalem, and he was arrested. And so we've seen the Jews try to riot to kill him as they drug him out of the temple. They see the Sanhedrin riot as he stands before them and tries to give a defense. And so at this point we're seeing Paul being moved away from Jerusalem to Caesarea And we're going to get to see him be introduced to Governor Felix in our passage this morning. Uh, We're going to break this up, so we're not going to try to read the whole thing all at once. We'll break it up into the normal breakdown sections there. Uh, But we're going to begin in Acts 23. We're going to start in verse 12, and we're going to read to verse 22. So follow along with me as I read that this morning. Luke says, When it was morning, so this is the morning after the riot with the Sanhedrin. When it was morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who had formed this plot. These men went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a solemn curse that we won't eat anything until we have killed Paul. So now you, along with the Sanhedrin, make a request to the commander that he bring him down to you as though you were going to investigate his case more thoroughly. But before he gets near, we are ready to kill him. But the son of Paul's sister, hearing about their ambush, came and entered the barracks and reported it to Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander because he has something to report to him. And so he took him, brought him to the commander, and said, The prisoner Paul called me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand, led him aside, and inquired privately, What is it you have to report to me? The Jews, he said, have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the Sanhedrin tomorrow as though they're going to hold a somewhat more careful inquiry about him. Don't let them persuade you because there are more than 40 of them lying in ambush, men who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they have killed him. Now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the commander dismissed the young man and instructed him, Don't tell anyone that you have informed me about this. All right, so the first thing we're told in our passage this morning is that there's a plot to kill Paul. Nothing new. Everyone's trying to kill Paul. This is kind of part of his resume, right? But here we have more than 40 men who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. And so they go to the chief priests and the elders, then they begin to involve them in their plot. They want them to have the Sanhedrin come together, request Another meeting with Paul under the false pretenses that they're actually going to investigate his case this time instead of just jumping to conclusions and trying to kill him. And so they want the commander to bring him to the Sanhedrin for a more thorough investigation, and when Paul is in transit, they plan on killing him in an ambush. And we're seeing so much hypocrisy here. right? You've got these people who are zealous For God's law they don't seem to have any issues whatsoever with transgressing that law right They're maybe they're not going to be the ones that murder Paul but they're uh, agreeing to conspiracy to commit murder they're lying right but you know as long as it the means fits the end then it's okay in their mind they don't mind breaking the law themselves it's just you that can't break the law you you little peasants who are not the Sanhedrin you can't transgress the law because we say so but because of their position they feel like they can. I don't know why. I don't understand how they can come to that conclusion after being experts in the law of God, but here they are agreeing to commit murder, agreeing to lie in order to make that happen. The problem though is that Paul's nephew, this is the first time we've heard anything about Paul's family, but we find out here he has a sister who has a son. So Paul's nephew overhears the plot and he comes to Paul with the information. And so after Paul gets that information from his nephew, he sends the nephew to the commander. And it says here that the commander takes him by the hand and leads him aside. So we can assume that unless this is a really weird situation with like some 20-year-old dude, like this is a young boy, right? Because the commander's taking him by the hand and walking him away. So we can assume young child or young-ish, young enough to be taken by the hand, but old enough to be believed when you know someone talks to them about the plot that's being planned here. And so the commander brings him aside. The nephew shares the information that he overheard and the commander believes him and instructs everyone him not to tell anyone that he knows. Right, Because the commander is about to make a plan himself and he doesn't want that interfered with. And we're going to see that in verses 23 to 35. It says there, he summoned two of his centurions and said, get 200 soldiers ready with 70 cavalry and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at 9 tonight. Also provide mounts to ride so that Paul may be brought safely to Felix the governor. He wrote the following letter, Claudius Silius to the excellent, most excellent governor Felix, greetings. When this man had been seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them, I arrived with my troops and rescued him because I learned that he was a Roman citizen. Wanting to know the charge they were accusing him of, I brought him down before their Sanhedrin. I found out that the accusations were concerning questions of their law and that there was no charge that merited death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there was a plot against the man, I sent him to you right away. I also ordered his accusers to state their case against him in your presence. So the soldiers took Paul during the night and brought him to Antipatris as they were ordered. The next day they returned to the barracks, allowing the cavalry to go on with him. When these men entered Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. After he read it, he asked what province he was from. When he learned he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing whenever your accusers also get here. He ordered that he be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Okay. Chapter 23. Okay. Um, The the voice from God is not wrong. That is is the chapter that we are in. Okay, so, and it was 23 23 to 35, just in case you just want the rest of it. Um, So, we see the commander makes these plans to move Paul to Caesarea. All right, so the commander pulls two centurions. So, these are men that are over 100 100 people, centurion. And so, both of these are going to get all their men together, and he's going to take an excessively armed escort to get Paul away from Jerusalem and to Caesarea that night. And he writes a letter to the governor whose name is Felix. And if you have been following along with this, you may have noticed that that letter wasn't quite accurate, was it? Right? He makes it sound like, He intervened in Paul's beating at the hands of the Jews because he learned that Paul was a Roman citizen. When in reality, he had no idea that Paul was a Roman citizen at the time of his intervention. All he knows is that there was a riot forming and he needed to stop that riot as quickly as possible. He even tried to have Paul beaten himself. Because he wanted to find out the truth. And so he, he made plans for him to be scourged. And then Paul acknowledges the fact that he was a Roman citizen. And that it was against their law for him to be beaten because he was a Roman citizen. But you notice he doesn't mention any of that. Right? The commander's not sitting there going, oh, and I almost beat a Roman citizen without having him being you know judged or condemned in any way, shape, or form. Um, but we'll just try to forget about that, Governor Felix, in your honor. Uh, so... He, mentions, he does mention bringing Paul before the Sanhedrin, where he learns that uh, the accusations against Paul is concerning their law. So he's saying this isn't really a moral issue. It's not an issue against our law. It's against, It's a theological issue. The reason why they're trying to kill this man is because he doesn't believe the same way that they believe, and he's causing strife because of that. So... He informs the governor he learned a plot uh, of a plot against Paul and so he sent Paul to the governor immediately and he wants Paul's accusers to state their case against Paul before the governor himself. But here's the question that I have in this letter about this letter. The commander stated clearly, clearly that there are no charges against Paul that merit death or imprisonment. But where is Paul? Paul's incarcerated by the Roman government. Right? He openly stated, there's no reason for this, but we're going to keep him locked up anyway. So if the commander found no reason for Paul to be in jail, why is Paul still in custody? Why didn't the commander just lead Paul out, knowing that people were coming against him? Why didn't he just lead Paul out and get him to safety? Or even if he didn't want to get that involved, just simply let Paul go and let actions take their own course. Right? If he knows that Paul is innocent, what's the point of sending Paul to the governor if he's innocent? And the answer is politics. The answer is politics. That's everything that's going on here it is a political move by this commander. You're going to see a political move by Felix himself the jews are a volatile people we've seen this over and over again we saw it in the book of matthew we saw it we're seeing it in the book of acts they will riot at the drop of a hat give them a reason and they are going to go off on somebody right and the romans value order right that's the reason why you saw when paul was pointed out to be a roman citizen they backed away real quick because look you don't do things out of order with these people if you do you'll take their place next. So the Romans value order, and if you can't keep the people in check that you have been governance over, then you will be removed. You might be killed in the process. But Paul isn't released here. Why? Because the Jews would go nuts if he were just simply released and the Roman leaders would be on shaky ground. And so all of this is happening, the incarceration, the moving him up the ranks to talk to people in the Roman government, all of this is happening to appease the Jews. It's amazing. They're not in charge. Like the Romans are thoroughly in charge of these people, and they know that. But if they want to, they can make sure you're not in charge either. All right, I'll make sure that your governance is over real quick there, Felix, if you don't help me out and do some of the things that I ask you to do. And so, because of that, Paul is kept in prison. Right? And so the soldiers, they follow the orders. They take this massive group of people and they lead Paul into Caesarea as they were ordered. And it says that the soldiers return the next day. The cavalry goes on with him and they deliver him and the letter to the commander, uh, from the commander to the governor. And then the governor wants to know where Paul's from. He expresses that he's from Cilicia and he says, I'll give you a hearing once your accusers are here. And so he's waiting for these people to bring their accusation before Paul, which brings us to chapter 24, verses 1 through 9. It says there, five days later, Ananias, the high priest, came down with some elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. These men presented their case against Paul to the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus began to accuse him and said, We enjoy great peace because of you, and reforms are taking place for the benefit of this nation because of your foresight. We acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with utmost gratitude. But so that I will not burden you any further, I request that you would be kind enough to give us a brief hearing. For we have found this man to be a plague, an agitator among all the Jews throughout the Roman world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to desecrate the temple, and so we apprehended him. By examining yourself, you will be able to discern the truth about these charges we're bringing against him. The Jews also joined in the attack, alleging that these things were true. So, five days later, Ananias, the high priest, the one who ordered Paul to be struck in the face against the law in the Sanhedrin, he comes down to Caesarea with some other elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. And they present uh, this case before Paul uh, against Paul to the governor, Uh, where we see, oh my gosh, so much kissing up to the governor by Tertullus. Everything has been so great since you've been in charge here, oh great, excellent Felix. Like, we're so thankful for all the reforms that you have done in this magnificent way, which is so great. I mean, it's, you just, there's so much (laughs) flattery going on here. It just makes you want to throw up. But then, on the flip side of that, you see Tertullus also accuse Paul of being a plague right so like you got flowery fruity words and then this, this guy's a plague you're amazing this guy's a plague right he's an agitator among all the Jews throughout the roman world and a ringleader of the sect of the nazarenes Uh, He says he tried to desecrate the temple, which isn't true at all. And um, that's why the Jews apprehended him. And he says, oh, Felix, I'm sure that you will be able to discern the truth because you're so smart and good looking and it's amazing. You have great hair and all of this. Like, it's just so much flattery going on here. They says, surely you, sir, will be able to discern the truth. You, You know who's telling the truth here. And the other guys chime in at this point and they're backing up to tell us a story here. And then Paul is going to get his opportunity to speak here in verses 10 to 21 and says, when the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, because I know you have been a judge of this nation for many years. I'm glad to offer my defense in what concerns me. You can verify for yourself that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem uh, to worship in Jerusalem. They didn't find me arguing with anyone or causing a disturbance among the crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or anywhere in the city. Neither can they prove the charges they are now making against me. But I admit this to you I worship the God of my ancestors according to the way, which they call a sect, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and written in the prophets. I have a hope in God, which these men themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection, both of the righteous and the unrighteous. I always strive to have a clear conscience towards God and men. After many years, I came to bring charitable gifts and offerings to my people. While I was doing this, some Jews from Asia found me ritually purified in the temple without a crowd and without any uproar. It is they who ought to be here before you to bring charges if they have anything against me. Or let these men here state what wrongdoing they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin other than this one statement I shouted while standing among them. Today, I am on trial before you concerning the resurrection of the dead. All right, so... Get a little bit of Paul kissing up as well. It's always a good idea to address your judges and people that are going to be proclaiming sentences against you in a respectful way. So he kisses up a little bit. He says, I know you've been here for many years, so you know what's going on. You know how the Jews are, right? Um, and I'm glad to offer my defense up about what concerns me to you because, again, you're, you're good at this. And so uh, he kisses up a little bit as well. He acknowledges that it's been no more than 12 days since... He has come up to worship in Jerusalem. So basically he's saying, I haven't been here long enough to cause trouble. right? How can I possibly be a plague in 12 days? right? I've been in Jerusalem 12 days. I gathered this offering that I brought up, gave it to the temple. I ritually, I ritually purified myself. I went into the temple. That ritual purification would have taken seven days. So he's not even gone into the temple for seven days. And now here he is. And he's presenting himself there. He says, they didn't find me arguing with anyone or causing a disturbance among the crowd. He's just sitting in the temple when they grabbed him. He says, I wasn't causing problems in the temple. I wasn't causing problems in any of the synagogues in the city. And there was nowhere else in the city that I was causing problems. And on top of that, they can't prove the charges they've leveled against me today. So you don't mess with Paul. Paul is... a Pharisee so he he knows the law he knows how to argue the law and so he's laying out his case in a very compelling way right you can't even prove the charges that you're leveling against me now and so if Felix were at all a man of principle that alone should be enough to let Paul go but Felix is not a man of principle as we're going to see uh he's going to hope that Paul's going to uh line his pockets a little bit, and he wants to do the Jews a favor. We'll get there in just a few minutes. Uh, but Paul also says that he worships the God of his ancestors according to the way. So Paul's making the assertion here. He says, I'm not a blasphemer. These people think I am blaspheming our God, and I'm telling you, I am not. I am still worshiping the God of our ancestors. We have a common God that I am still worshiping, but I'm worshiping it according or him according to the way. Christianity is a continuation of the Jewish faith. If the Jews could see the truth about Jesus, they would worship Jesus in the same way that the Apostle Paul has been worshiping Jesus because they would see the truth that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. Everything that Paul believes about Jesus is in absolute accordance with the law and the prophets throughout the Old Testament. Right? He says, I still worship the same God that I have always worshipped. Right? the reason That statement right there is one of the reasons why I chose us to go through the Gospel of Matthew before we got into the book of Acts. Right? Matthew wrote to a Jewish audience and he made it a point to show that Jesus was the fulfillment of many different prophecies that was, were put out there hundreds if not thousands of years before Jesus ever showed up. And he starts off in Matthew with the genealogy. He says, hey, this guy is a descendant of David. And it says many times, 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16, Isaiah 11, 1, Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6. It says that David's, uh, David would be a king on the throne forever. His lineage would be there. And so Matthew points this out. He points out that Mary was a virgin when Jesus was born, which fulfills Isaiah 7.14. He told his readers that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2, that he would be called out of Egypt when Herod tried to kill all the little babies. We see that in Hosea 11.1, right? The Messiah would suffer, Isaiah 53. We see how he would suffer in Psalm 22. And we see all of that in Matthew's gospel. So, Matthew, pointing, talking to that Jewish audience, he's trying to do what Paul's doing here. He's saying, nothing has changed here. Like, this is the continuation of our faith because this is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. Right? The list goes on and on about everything that we can see that is fulfilled in Christ. But Paul is saying, I have not veered off the Jewish path into Crazy Town for following Jesus. This is a very normal progression of our faith if you would just open your eyes and see the truth of who Jesus is. Paul makes another connection with his accusers by affirming uh, a belief in the resurrection of the dead both for the righteous and the unrighteous. Everyone will be raised back to new life. Some will be raised to glory forevermore. Some will be raised to condemnation depending on what we have done with Jesus. But he's saying these guys believe this and so for the most part I'm still with them. All right, I'm not just going off into left field here. Like We're still walking the same path. He mentions again here that he's tried to live his life in good conscience before God and men. You might remember that is how he started his defense of himself before the Sanhedrin, before he got clocked in the mouth. So this is probably what he was trying to say before those men. They wouldn't let him speak. And so this is the direction that things have gone. Right? Then... He says that the people before him aren't even those who had originally said that he had done all these bad things. Right? This is second-hand information that they are sharing with you, O great Felix. Right? These men weren't even in the temple when I was being accused. He said, I'm minding my own business in the temple without an uproar. And the Jews from Asia grabbed me and started making accusations against me. If anyone should be making a case before you against me, it should be them. Where are they? Right, this is secondhand information. But the people that are there have nothing to charge Paul with. And Paul says, if, you, if they do, by all means, state the wrongdoing that you found in me before the Sanhedrin, other than claiming that I stated I believed in the resurrection of the dead. Right, that's what started the uproar among the Sanhedrin. I did yell that out. I will admit to that. But that started a fight among them. I didn't do that. I just stated what I believed. All right, so... Other than that one thing that caused a little bit of an uproar among the Sanhedrin, but still not one of the accusations that, that they have brought against him, that's the only thing that they have against Paul. Uh, so none of this stuff should stick. Well, let's see what Felix is going to do here. Verses 22 to 27. It says, Since Felix was well informed about the way, he adjourned the hearing and saying, When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will decide your case. He ordered that the centurion keep Paul under guard, though he could have some freedom, and that he should not prevent any of his friends from meeting his needs. Several days later, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and listened to him on the subject of faith in Christ Jesus. Now as he spoke about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became afraid and replied, Leave for now, but when I have an opportunity, I'll call for you. At the same time, he was also hoping that Paul would offer him money, and so he sent for him quite often and conversed with him. After two years had passed, Portius Festus preceded Felix. And because Felix wanted to do the Jews a favor, he left Paul in prison. All right, so we see here Felix is well informed about the way. Right, That's what people are calling Christianity about this. It's part of Jesus saying that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so this is this stuck. So he's heard about the Christian faith. And he says, when the commander gets here, I'm trying to get a little bit more information. When the commander gets here and I hear a little bit more from him in person instead of through this letter, then we will decide your case. And so he orders that Paul be kept under guard, though, because he is a Roman citizen, he can have certain freedoms. People can bring him things. He'll ask for a cloak and for his scrolls and stuff like that while he's spending time in prison. Uh, And it says, several days later, Felix and his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, sent for Paul and he listened to him on the subject of faith in Christ. Now what an opportunity. Right, you're going to have a one-on-one conversation with the governor of this province in Rome, right? And you're what are you going to talk about? You're going to talk about faith in Christ Jesus. There's an open door for the message of the gospel to go forth. Right? Paul is not responsible for Felix's response. Right? He's not responsible for bringing people into faith, that's the Holy Spirit's job. But he is responsible for sharing the message of the gospel with Felix and Drusilla, and that's exactly what he does. Now listen, if you didn't see it before, think about what Luke tells us that Paul spoke to them about. He spoke to them about righteousness, he spoke to them about self-control, and he spoke about the judgment to come. And when he hears about these things, in that progression, you see that Felix became afraid, and he sends Paul away. And there's a lot of times people will look at me and they'll say, "Chris, what how do I share my faith? What what do I say to people when it comes to sharing my faith?" And this tactic right here, it's a good tactic to use when you've got someone who has zero understanding or idea about the Christian faith. Or maybe they do know about it like Felix, but yet they just don't think that there is any merit to it. This technique of talking about self-righteousness or about righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come, it's it's good to get there because you can talk about God's holy nature and his requirement that people are 100% righteous. Right? Why is this a good tactic? Because most of the time people believe I'm a good person. Depending on what standard you measure me up against, I am a pretty good person. Right? But an easy way to prove them to them that they're not as good as they think they are. All you have to do is work through the 10 commandments Right? Don't even start with the four God centered ones yet because some people don't believe in God at all. So if you think you're a good person, let's start with the man centered ones. Right? Have you ever dishonored your parents? I mean, is anybody gonna say, no, I've never done that? Really? Like, let's talk to your parents. We know better. Have you ever told a lie? Well, if you said that you never dishonored your parents, you just told a lie, because we all know better than that. But if you've ever told a lie, that makes you a liar. Yes? Does that are liars good people? Have you ever stolen anything? Ever? Ever? You've never stolen anything, right? Have you ever killed anyone? Maybe not physically, but Jesus says, having anger in your heart towards anyone bears the same responsibility before God as killing them outright. Have you ever committed adultery? Maybe not physically, but have you ever lusted after someone who wasn't your spouse in your heart? That brings the same responsibility as physically engaging in sexual activity with someone who's not your spouse. Have you ever coveted someone else's stuff? You wanted what someone else has? Yes. Yes, you have. I can promise you. You have done that. Right? Once you get through those, right, if they're still fighting against you with that, get to the God questions. Have you ever worshiped anything or anyone other than God? Right? Anything have His place in your heart where you should be giving Him your worship, where you should be giving Him your trust? Do you put anything else there? Money? Power? Anything like that? Does it take place? take his place. And if you can get people to be honest with themselves and you, sometimes they'll be more honest with themselves than you, through this line of thinking, you can get to the truth of what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There's no one who does what is good, not even one. No one does what is good. And so by the world's standards, we might be pretty decent people. But when you bring in the idea that God has an expectation of 100% righteousness, of zero flaws, no lies, no disrespect towards parents, no coveting, no lusting, no murder, none of this. No one can measure up to that. That's the reason why we need Jesus He lived the life that we are expected to live, 100% righteous, 100% perfect, following the law, 100%. And then he died on the cross and took the wrath of God that we deserve because of our sin. And then he rose from the dead three days later, proving that his sacrifice was accepted before God the Father. God looked at Jesus said done and done and that sacrifice is sufficient for salvation and then he came back from the dead and he conquered sin he conquered death for those who would put their faith in Jesus and once we put our faith in Jesus he gives us his righteousness right he gives us a, a receipt for our debt that says paid in full that righteousness is ours He endured our penalty. He suffered the wrath of of the Father and in exchange for our sin, He gives us His righteousness. Therefore, if we are in Christ, we are no longer condemned because our guilt has been removed. Our sin has been washed away by the blood of Christ. And if you can go through all of that and people still hold to a false notion that they are still good people, ask them about their self-control. Right, he started off with righteousness. This is what righteousness looks like. All right, and then let's say you can they jump that hurdle and they go to this idea of self-control. Uh, let's assume you are good, right? Let's say you're good here at this moment, but are you always good? Always, right? Do you always honor your parents? Do you always tell the truth? Always, honey, does this dress make me look fat? Do you always tell the truth? right? Do you always tell the truth? Do you ever steal anything? Ever? And most of the time people are like, no I never steal, I never steal. And this is one of my favorite ones to discuss with people because it gets them a little sheepish when I'm done. But while you're at work, do you ever check your phone? Do you ever look to see what's going on on social media while you're at work? Is your boss paying you to look at your phone while you're at work? That's stealing. You're stealing time from your boss. You're stealing money and you're not working during that time. That is stealing right? You're not robbing a cash register, but you're also doing something that they're not paying you to do, right? While you're at work, do you always have your anger in check? Always, right? Get stuck in traffic, you always have your anger in check. Do you ever lust after anyone? Ever? Has that ever happened? Do you ever covet anyone else's stuff? Ever? And I'm talking like ever, always, How's your self control? Can you maintain the illusion of goodness all the time? All the time. Right? If that's the case, then fantastic. You don't need Jesus. But guess what? You can't. You can't. And there are consequences for that. Then, like Paul, you need to bring up those consequences for breaking God's commandment judgment is coming. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14 says when all has been heard the conclusion of the matter is this fear God and keep his commands because this is for all humanity for God will bring every act to judgment including every hidden thing whether good or evil Right? God sees it all God knows it all there isn't a thought you have ever thunk that God is not aware of and he's going to hold all of us accountable for it all Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5:10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body whether good or evil. Judgment's coming. The question is whether or not we get judged on our own merit or whether we get judged on the merit of Christ who was everything that we needed and offered us his righteousness. Judgment is coming. When Felix heard all of this he got scared. And let me tell you, anyone who has a true sense of these things should be scared if they don't have faith in Jesus. James tells us that the the demons shudder when they think about God. They They don't believe in Him. They don't put their faith in Him, but they shudder when they think about that. Listen to these words from Hebrews 10, 26 to 31. For if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy, based on the testimony of two to three witnesses. How much more, how much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know the one who has said, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Right, I don't, I don't understand how we get this idea of the hippie Jesus that's throwing up the peace sign and sprinkling love dust on everybody. Like this is not the person that's coming back when he returns. Right? We're getting the warrior king with a tattoo on his thigh and a sword coming out of his mouth and he's going to sit on the judgment seat and you are going to be judged based on whether or not you have salvation in Christ or you're going to stand in front of him on your own merit. And if you're going up on your merit, you should be afraid. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The wrath of God is coming For all who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if that's you here today, you need to understand you're not going to be condemned when you die. You are condemned now, right now. God has already passed judgment on you because of your sin. Right? Many people are familiar with what Jesus says in John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And those verses are really encouraging. Jesus says, For God so loved the world in this way, He gave His one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. And then people go, Oh, yay, yeah, God loves me. God is love. Right? There's nothing to be afraid of here. But listen to verse 18. Anyone who believes in Him is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. If you're here today and you have not placed your faith in Jesus, you will not be condemned when you die. You stand in condemnation right now. If you have not repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus, then you're one heartbeat away from falling into the hands, the terrifying hands of the living God. And that's not going to go well for you. If you die without having accepted the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf, you'll stand before God on your merit. And it has to be 100%. You will be found guilty of rebellion against a holy and righteous God. You will be separated from God forever, and you will be sent to a place called hell where you will experience God's wrath for eternity. This is the reality that we all face here this morning. This is the reality that everyone out there faces this morning. Now, in saying this, I am not trying to scare you, I'm not trying to scare you into heaven. Okay, I'm just letting you know what the reality is of what the scriptures say is coming for those who have not placed their faith in Jesus, right? If I don't tell you the truth, if I sugarcoat it so that you feel better about yourself or so you feel better about those loved ones that you may or may not be sharing the gospel with out there, if I do that, then your blood is on my hands. Their blood is on my hands and it will not be on my hands. I'm not trying to scare you, but you must know the truth. And I want you, if you walk out of here going, yay, praise the Lord, I am covered by Jesus' righteousness, and you walk out of this place, but you don't walk out of here with the weight of the idea that the people that you meet have that same weight on them, that they are one heartbeat away from judgment, then I have not done, done my job. This is a weighty thing. And if... And if you're here today and the Holy Spirit has now opened your eyes to the idea of the truth of all of this that the gospel is true and right then uh, and you're wondering what to do next then listen to these words of Mark of Christ from Mark 1:15. He says, "The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near; repent and believe the good news." Today is the day of salvation. If you will repent of your sin, that means you turn away from it. To repent means to turn. It's a 180 degree turn you say god i know that i have sinned against you i know that my sin warrants death and separation from you forever but i believe that jesus died to atone for my sin then i put my faith in him for salvation if you will do this and you will truly believe then Jesus' sacrifice will be applied to your life then you will be 100 percent righteous Right? I don't hold up my report card before God and say, this is all that I have for you. I hold up Jesus' report card and it says, A+, plus, 100%, no, nothing missed. I mean, I don't even want to think about what my report card would say. But Jesus got straight A's. Jesus' righteousness covers all our sins. Psalm 103.12 says that when our sins are removed because of Jesus' righteousness, they're moved as far away from us as the east is from the west. And Jesus' righteousness will be given to you if you'll put your faith in Him and you will come from death to life. And when you face God, someday, as we all will, either at our physical death or when Christ returns, when the time for judgment comes, you will be declared not guilty based on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. All right? If this is doing anything in any of you this morning, I beg you, I beg you to repent and to turn and to put your faith in Jesus. Unfortunately, though, even though Felix was scared by his talk with Paul, he doesn't... Do this at this time we don't know if he ever did come to faith but he sends paul away uh, saying that when he has opportunity he'll call him back all right he sends away paul away and he's hoping hoping that paul will offer him some money all right give me a bribe make this worth my while all right so this goes to show that and the reason why i don't use fear tactics i do try to put the truth of God's judgment out there, but I'm not trying to scare anyone because it's obvious that fear alone is not enough to bring someone into salvation. Fear alone won't do it. This is why we do not do this to try to influence people into God's kingdom. We, we shared the truth. People need to know what's coming, but we're not hellfire and brimstone all the time because if you scare people into heaven, they won't stay there. Right? As soon as that fear eases up, if God hasn't really done something in their heart, then they'll back away from it. Guaranteed. Right? If the Holy Spirit isn't working on their heart, the gospel falls on deaf ears and the beauty of Christ is lost on blind eyes. They just can't see it. They just can't hear it. And some people will simply walk away from Jesus' offer of salvation. And this is why we must pray we must pray for the Holy Spirit to change hearts. If you have people in your life that you know are lost, you long to see them come to faith in Jesus, you must be persistent in prayer for them. And ask God on a regular basis to reveal the truth. Pray that God pray fervently that God would save them. Beg God to save them and at the same time Put yourself in their life. Share the gospel with them. Make sure that they hear the truth over and over as long as they will allow it. I I mean, I've I've had people, one guy in particular that I'm thinking of, like I tried to share the gospel with him every time I saw him. I didn't get to see him often. Tried to share every time I saw him. And eventually he goes, man, look, I know that you love me. And I know that you believe this is true. But I don't and I need you to stop. I don't want to have this conversation with you anymore. And I said, Okay. I mean, that breaks my heart. But I will honor your wishes. I'd shared the gospel with him several times. And I will pray for you. He said, I wish you wouldn't. I said, Well, you can't stop me from doing that. So I will pray and hopefully the Holy Spirit will use what the time that we've had and he'll open his eyes. It to my knowledge, it hasn't happened yet. But I'm still praying. Felix wasn't moved by the message of the gospel and he wasn't moved to release the apostle Paul from prison. Verse 27 says that two years has passed. So I don't know like what's going on in the commander's schedule, but he's like, I will pass you know, judgment when he gets down here. But apparently he's been really busy for two years and hasn't been able to make it down. Paul is still in prison. It says that Portius Festus takes over Felix's position and Felix leaves Paul in prison in order to do the Jews a favor. It's all politics. This whole thing is a political dance uh, that these people are are doing they're walking a very tight rope, trying not to offend certain people and and you know lean too heavily one way or the other, and we see here that Felix still has his eyes on the treasures of this world right that's the only reason why you could possibly keep an innocent man in prison is there something going on where your eyes are focused on the the treasures of this world he's still living for wealth he's still living for power or pleasure or whatever this spiraling world has to offer right he's still living this life as though this is all there is if he continues on this path to the end of his days then he learned the hard way that paul was right that righteousness and self-control is what god expects of us and when we can't do that judgment comes He learned the hard way how awful it is to fall into the hands of the living God. And I pray that this is not how your story ends. If there's anybody here that needs to do some work with the Lord while we sing our last song, if anybody needs to talk with me after the service is over, I'm right here. I stay right here just hoping that someone will come chat with me about what God is doing in their life after the service. And I'm here for a long time if you need to talk with me please do so if you need to schedule a time to talk let's do that I will make myself available but if this is you if this is ringing any bells with you here today then I pray that while we sing this last song you and God will do some work you don't have to come up here to do that work you can do that work in your seat but do the work if God is calling that putting that calling on your life do the work today don't wait Don't see if there's anything better, right? We have this thing now with FOMO, the fear of missing out, right? Where we don't do certain things because we're afraid that if we put that on the calendar, then something else better will come up and we won't get to do it. There's nothing better than putting your faith in Jesus. There's nothing waiting for you outside these doors that is any better than that. And so take the time to do that here today if that is calling to you. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your love for us. We are grateful that you have given us righteousness through Christ and that in his sacrifice, in his resurrection, we have an ability to conquer sin and conquer death through his great work for us. And I pray that if there's anyone here today that needs to put their faith in you, the Holy Spirit would open their eyes to the truth that their, the, the gospel, the beautiful gospel would fall on open, receptive ears And that hearts of stone would change into hearts of flesh right here today. And Lord, if that's not the the case for people because they've already put their faith in Jesus, I pray that the Holy Spirit would then overwhelm their hearts with the reality that judgment is coming. And that would put a desire in their heart to see people come to faith. And it would put fire under their feet to take that good news to those people to pray persistently and fervently for salvation. And that because of the work of this church and this community, we would see many people come to faith. And I ask all this in your son's precious name. Amen.